Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. I'm Michael. And this is Rebecca. And this is a podcast where two readers go through the Newberry Medals and uh, give our thoughts on each one, the Newberry Medal winners, I should say. Um, and so this time, we are going to be talking about the very first Newberry Medal winner, um, which was, I think, published in 1921, uh, but then the medal was given in 1922. Is that that's correct? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, and uh, this book, The Story of Mankind, uh, is written by a man named Hendrik Wilhelm von Loon. Uh, and I'm only saying von Loon um, because, uh, Rebecca, you found out... That the Dutch pronunciation is Van Loon, but the English pronunciation is Van Loon, and he said it didn't matter very much to him whatever way you pronounce it. Well, so. it matters to me. We on the yes. Newberry Chronicles value our uh, rigor in fact-checking and pronunciation. Um, and so if you guys heard me or somebody else allegedly mispronouncing this man's name in the previous podcast... Um, we issue an apology for anyone who may have been offended. Um, anyway, I'm going to give a quick overview of what this book is, and then we can talk about it. Uh, so The Story of Mankind is a book that was that is um, exactly what its title says uh, it is. Um, it's The Story of Mankind, uh, starting with the dawn of humanity uh, all the way up through... Um, well, he initially stopped writing in 1921, and so up through World War I. Um, the version we have was published in 1984, and so they added, um, they being he, added one section in the 1920s, and then his uh, grandson added more sections to cover up through the middle of the century, and then uh, another academic has added chapters to bring us up to 1984. Um, there's another more recent edition that covers up through 2010, um, but yeah, this is a nonfiction book. Uh, one of the very few uh, Newberry Medal winners that's nonfiction, I believe. Um, and it uh, is also, I think I'm confident in saying this will be the longest uh, Newberry Medal winner uh, that we will read because it is... I definitely hope so. Yeah, it is 592 pages. And granted, that's the 1984 version, uh, but... Uh, the uh, 1922 or 1921 version is only about 100 pages shorter than that, which butts it right up to about 100 pa- or 500 pages, which is really long. And, and it's not big type either, especially for a kid's book. Um, and it's fairly dense. You know, he's got to cover thousands of years of history. And I mean, he could have made this a lot longer, as he reminds us many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that, Mr. Von Loan, I thank you that you didn't make <laughs> it any longer. Um, so uh, one thing I should add, though, is it's not really the story of mankind. Um, I think that Von Loon thinks it is as, as much as he can within his space um, limitations, but really it's mostly the history of Western Europe. Um, we get uh, in the early goings stuff about ancient Egypt, uh, we get stuff about Persia and Babylon and all that sort of stuff, but really only because those eventually feed into Greece and Rome, um, which of course, like in the modern sense, are the kind of like birth of Western civilization, um, whether rightly or wrongly people consider it that. Um, so most of this is uh, about Western Europe. We don't even get a lot of stuff about like Czechoslovakia or what a, you know the Slavic um, you know regions. Um, and uh, he's pretty clear about that by the end. Is uh, you know he's he talks about how 
you know, I only had so much space, and so I picked the things that were most that I thought were most relevant to the development of mankind. But because I'm a, you know, my particular background gives me particular biases, and someone who is writing this in a different part of the world would probably write something different. And um, I would say that's definitely the case. If you're, you know, writing this in Africa, you may have mentioned Africa a few more times than just ancient Egypt uh, and the the colonial exploits. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were Chinese, you probably would have, you know talked about almost anything about China uh, besides, again, the colonial um, exploits with China and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's it's fairly limited in terms of the entire scope of human experience. Um, I it, it talks a lot about Western Europe, though, and so uh, it might be worthwhile just, and, you know, it's probably worthwhile just taking it on those terms rather than complaining that they don't talk about, you know, the Indian subcontinent very much or something like that. Um, but yeah, um, Mr. Speaking of, um, Mr. Von Lohn, um, uh, and, and his biases. So as we've already talked about, um, he, uh, was born in 1882. Um, he emigrated from the Netherlands in 1902 to study at Harvard and Cornell. So this dude's like a, you know, academically trained historian. Um, he was a journalist as well. Um, uh, working for the Associated Press. Uh, he worked during the Russian Revolution uh, and um, uh, like a European correspondent during World War I as well. Um, he also wrote a lot of different um, young adult books. Uh, this is the one that got him the gold, though, uh, the Newbery Gold. Um, and he was known for his illustrations, but I don't really know why, if his illustrations are anything like they are in this book. That's just a personal These opinion. These are his illustrations. They credit him. Right, but I'm saying I don't really know why he was recognized for them because I don't think that they're anything to write home about. They're very sketchy. We're they're going like, to get to our opinions in a bit, but, but that's just yeah. the one thing I wanted to add um, right now. Also, um, credit where credit is due, before we are more critical of this dude, the Nazis did not like this dude. Uh, and in fact, when the Nazis' party took power, he was banned um, from Germany, um, and he uh, helped in FDR's uh, political campaigns as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if we if we ever seem too negative, you know, let us be clear that any one person's life is a is a multitude of, of complicated interlacing threads, and not all of them are negative. So, um, there's some good things about Mr. Von Loan. Um, so, that's the book. That's the man who's very subjective perspective uh, we are um, going to be talking about today. Uh, so why don't we start with the things that we like, Rebecca? Yeah, I think it's always important to start with the positive in these books. And I will say this this analysis is going to be different than the other books that we read just because it's a different type of book. I think it's, I mean, while these pages are very, very long, it would not be helpful our listeners, I think, to go in depth about the plot as there is no plot. It is just history, which is a plot in, it, in and of itself. But um, regardless what we liked, I one, I do appreciate that um, Van Loan is both very pro-science throughout the book and is um, pro the arts, which neither of which seem to be very popular these days. Yeah, I will say uh, he takes some pot shots at William Jennings Bryan, which is very funny. Uh, yes. We were just down the road, uh, you know, about 100 miles away from Bryan College, uh, 
uh, and uh, and uh, Dayton, Tennessee, where the famous uh, monkey trials happened, uh, which are a lot more complicated than their historical legacy. But uh, he, I mean, he's basically a progressive, not in the modern, yeah. not in the modern sense of progressive, but in the progressive in the sense of he is for the things that advance the uh, the progress of human knowledge, basically. Yeah, and so one thing that he said about the arts, which I thought was um, was really poignant, and it's it's also not a surprise because this guy is an author. Um, but he, as he's talking about the story of mankind, he talks about once um, mankind has the time for leisure, that's when the arts really come to flourish. And he does have this uh, quote that I think is uh, kind of beautiful. He says. Um, that a world without art and happiness resembles a nursery without laughter. And so that's something um, that I think you can really see um, play throughout the book as he's talking about human triumphs and human setbacks, is really valuing the arts and what they mean to mankind. So I thought that that was beautiful. I also, I know I just... um, was criticizing his illustrations, but I also appreciate them in this book, not because I think they're good, but I think they make the book go quicker, Um, which (laughs) when you have almost 600 pages to read, I think that that is very nice. Um, I also, for what it's worth, this book does not read as a traditional history book, so it it flows pretty well. He tries um, to kind of weave the story. Obviously, it's a story of mankind, but um, I think he does a good job of not just giving, here's one fact, here's another, and here's another. But I think um, he tries to show how those build off of one another and influence the next decisions that were to come. And I think overall he does that really well. Um, I also appreciate for what it's worth, the chapters are fairly short. So that helps. That's I always mean, like the backhanded just, compliment I'm books. really sorry. <laughs> but this, the mechanics of it I think work well for what it is. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I liked. What did you like, Michael? Um, I do agree that it's got a good flow. It does a good job of painting history as a series of like interlocking events, which, uh, have effects on one another rather than the simple memorization, like, you know, timeline of dates and stuff. Um, I think, uh, well, that's a negative. I'll wait until later. Um, I also like, okay, this this annoyed Rebecca, and I think that this is a double-edged sword, um, but he has a very colorful voice uh, for the kind of book he's writing, right? I mean, this isn't like, you know, whatever, like a Mark Twain book or something where it's very sardonic and stuff, but he editorializes quite a bit, and sometimes in ways that are very funny. Um, toward the end of the book, he has a chapter which... I don't know why he didn't put it at the beginning of the book because it <laughs> basically gives his methodology, which is like I'm trying to give the history not of everything that happened, but of the things that I think most contributed to you know the like I say he's a progressive you know the progress of like the the development of man he says mankind I think it's mostly Western Europe again. Um, well, I think and I think the reason why he didn't do that at the beginning is because he didn't ask for feedback until I think he was almost done. Yeah, like, so this cha- the, the, the funny thing about this chapter is that he talks about how he's discouraged about how the progress of this book is going and he wishes he could start over but his publisher won't let him and stuff. And there's little asides like that throughout the book where he's like I really wish I could talk about this, but I got to keep going. Uh or like some of the stuff and this is like 
again, the part that's the double-edged sword, he editorializes a lot, like, about how he characterizes, like, he'll characterize whole people groups with these dismissive, like, series of adjectives, like, uh, the one that stands out to me the most is the Phoenicians, and there's a whole chapter about the Phoenicians and their connection with the Mediterranean trade, you know, at the end of the Bronze Age and all that sort of stuff, and uh, he talks about how the Phoenicians didn't have, a, they had no moral code, and all their neighbors said that said so, and they didn't have any friends, uh, and all that sort but, of stuff, and it's... And then he also says later on, though, that when you're telling history, that you you can't share your opinions. You're just supposed to share facts. So I don't really know what he thinks he's doing. But, but at times it's very amusing. Like, this book is not like a laugh riot, but at times it is very amusing some of the ways that he words things uh, because he it is a really invasive authorial voice compared to, let's say, like a more traditional non-fictional textbook um, or something like that because his opinions are very clear. Um Again, like I said, double-edged sword, but, like, as someone who is, like, when he was writing this, I, I assume he was very familiar with the Russian Revolution, since I guess he was covering that. Uh, but he makes little asides, like, when he's talking about, like, uh, the rise of, like, Karl Marx and communism and socialism in the 1800s. And he makes, uh, he's like, I won't use the word bourgeoisie, because that I've just become tired of that <laughs> word. Uh, and so I'll just say capitalists. And uh, things like that, that's... It's funny, like, yeah. it doesn't always make for good history, but it's it's occasionally very funny. And he stops every once in a while to, to talk to his grandchildren, because that's who he wrote this book for. Um, so it he does take on a very grandfatherly tone that I think is cute. I know I said I was annoyed, but mostly it's because I hate it when people try to justify why they're talking so long or writing so long about something, and in doing that, they write even longer than they would have otherwise. I'm just like, get... Just go. Just go for it. You would but, hate Don Quixote, which is what I'm reading for leisure right now. I would hate which it. Which makes a point of doing that. But anyway, let's get into um, let's get into what we didn't like, because I think that this is going to be the... As we've already started. <laughs> this, yeah, we're, we're naturally segueing into this. I think this is yeah. going to be the, the meat of the podcast. Uh, yeah. So, Rebecca, you begin. Well, I mean, this is not surprising. Both of us, when we looked at this book and said, well, this is a history book that was written in the 1920s for children by a white man. You know, I think we had our assumptions going in about what this book was going to be. And most of those assumptions were um, true, I think. I would say so. I mean, in terms of... Okay, and th this is meant as a, as a value-neutral statement. But, like, I think that he basically represents fairly fairly consistently what like kind of uh like the american liberal consensus of the world would have been in like the early 1900s um mm. and i like specifically liberal like as opposed to let's say communist which was also a big deal in america at the time also specifically as opposed to let's say like reactionary or conservative right like he is not he he he's basically trying to make like the nice guy like he he wants people to be nice he doesn't, mm -hmm. he doesn't seem to really value um, uh, oppression in and of itself or try to, um, it, when he does talk about oppression, he either one, tries to make it clear that like it was nice and so don't worry about it, or two, make it clear that it was wrong, right? He's not mm -hmm. trying to say, for instance, that slavery was good, um, which is what a lot of people were saying in the 1920s, actually. Um, That's true. So I think that like, he's, if, if, so anyway, like I said, that's a value neutral statement, but I think reflects 
where his perspective is. Yeah. Like, he's not a KKK guy, which is no, not a... he's not. ...foregone conclusion for the 1920s. He is not. But just to give some examples, this this book, I, I think, is, is very racist. Um, oh, it is. One, I agree. I'm not really defending it. Yeah. One is that Asian people are called yellow throughout the book, and that's just pretty normalized. Like, it's not even, it's not even phrased as kind of an insult. Like, you can just tell that these things were just how, how academic, maybe not all academics, but it was fairly acceptable for people to just talk about other races in this way. It's hard to tell, too, because language is funny in that sometimes yeah. things that were once considered neutral have become offensive because they've been associated with right. things. So I... Like, to be honest, I don't know how offensive calling someone yellow would have been, but he's clearly very pejorative toward and, Asians. And he's very dismissive of other cultures, which I'll, I'll get to. But blacks are depicted as uncivilized, they're uneducated, they're, they're just depicted as inferior. And some examples of this is he's very dismissive of just even the concept that uh, royalty existed in African countries. So when he talks about kings, um, he... He makes up this funny name for, a, like, a made-up name for a king that you can tell is just kind of um, criticizing cultural norms in these African countries. And he makes a point to say, this is nothing like the kings that you and I think about. Um, so Which is funny because so much of this book, because of the history of Europe, is all these petty squabblings between, like, various like low level mm -hmm. like monarchs and stuff like just like squabbling with one another and were this happening in africa or something i think we'd be fairly comfortable in saying these are tribal disputes but since it's happening in the context of europe we say oh this is the king of northumbria or right. you know whatever and we we talk about that in a way that glorifies it even though like in terms of the scale of conflict happening it's not that different than um what we I'm using we to indicate like maybe generic European descendant folks who don't know that much about Africa. We would pejorize as like merely tribal. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that that's the problem throughout the book. It's just that the, the era of white supremacy, which again, is not surprising um, with when it was written and who wrote it. Um, and I one thing I forgot to say that I liked is I do think there is an air of humility with Van Loan. Like, he's able to say, um, if you read other history books, which you should, you're going to get a different perspective. You're going to get different biases here. Which he repeatedly I, refers people to his bibliography at the yeah, end of the book, which is impressive for something about, for children. I really do. I really do think that that is, is good. And I, like I said, I don't feel that... Um, Many people are saying that today in terms of education, what we're teaching our kids, what teachers should be teaching. So I, I really do appreciate him for that. So as much as I criticize him, I, I do think um, he, he has some self-awareness about um, just self-awareness, but also the importance of like hearing different perspectives, which I really appreciate. Um, some other things that are questionable, and again, I'm critiquing the things that I know now, like have really shaped the way that that we've taught our our American history. So there's a lot more in this book than America. America is not the main part, but it's the, actually a very small. It part is, but this. those are the things that I'm reading it, and I'm like, well, you definitely got that wrong. You know, um, that's my bias there. But I do. Um, 
he he barely talks about Native Americans. Um, he does make a statement about how um, Native Americans died under slavery, but uh, black people were stronger, and thus they could work in under harsher conditions. Um, so Which that, is very untrue, by the it way. Is. Like, and also those. It, it's just it's so sad reading this because you see ways in which not not this book necessarily, but these kind of ideas still have weight today. Like when you think about our, you know, I don't I don't want to get on too many soapboxes, but when you just think about what we've taught throughout history, um, what we've learned throughout our history in school, and also what we've understood um, in terms of medical care for minorities, I just it it just made me very sad because you could tell that these ideas were just um, accepted as fact. And it, it's just really concerning how many people were hurt by these things. So that, that just made me sad as I was reading it. But did you have another yeah. comment on that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of that thing that I says is a double-edged sword because about his authorial voice, which is that he will characterize people groups as having certain characteristics. And this isn't characteristics like they come from this part of the world or whatever. It's like either physical or, or personality traits. And I think that we nowadays, especially having seen like, I mean, 1920s is the height of like, quote unquote, like scientific racism, right? Where the idea was like to isolate, like what are the inherent traits of people of different races or whatever. And I think now, you know, if we're not altogether like dismissive of the idea of biological race, we at least understand that um, most of these things are socially conditioned rather than, um, you know, something inherent in them. But like, for instance, with the Native American stuff, you know, him talking about how Native Americans just weren't strong enough to work in the fields and on plantations and stuff. And so they just died. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they laid down and died. It was as if it was just a choice that they made. Yeah. And so like on one hand, that's kind of like a funny way to describe that, but also it's not true because if you look into the history of it, at least as I understand it, which like, you know, again, biases, like the thing that made Native Americans difficult to uh, put into chattel slavery was that people were, like Native Americans are of course native to uh, the lands in which they were trying to be enslaved. And so they were much, uh, much more adept at uh, escaping uh, they also had, uh, you know, their, their people groups there to liberate them and all that sort of stuff. Um, at the, whereas with, you know, African slaves, you have kidnapped them, taken them away from their support systems, mm-hmm. put them into uh, conditions and, and, and regions that they're not familiar with. Like, and so all of that is based on their conditions and, and setting. That's why that happened. But he describes that element of history of why we enslaved Africans as opposed to Indians. Um as a feature of their immutable characteristics. And he does that a lot in the book. And so, like I said, none of that is surprising, but it just made me really sad Um, just thinking about where we are in America. And also, Michael and I recently read, I say recently, we were reading it last year, but we recently read uh, Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning, which is a better book than this one. Also, more worth your time. That's also a much narrower than this one. That is true. That is true. But again, that's that's just I don't I don't have anything. I have other things to critique about the history that I'm not as familiar with. But this was just more personal, I guess. So I'll I'll finish up. the The other thing I would just say is 
this book is just boring. I mean, as you would anticipate a book of the story of mankind to be, I do appreciate his undertaking. I, I was concerned for him that he, you know, spent so much time in doing this. <laughs> but I, I appreciate the undertaking, and apparently others did as well because he won the Newbery Medal. So any other dislikes that you would add? I mean, we could go through, like, you know, historical beat by historical beat, and, like, it's one of these things where I don't know about everything, you know? Mm -hmm. I can't claim that, for instance, um, I am an expert on the transition from feudalism into mercantilism and and then capitalism in in Europe, right? Which he spends quite a bit of time talking about, because that's a really important shift. Um, But I don't know the details of that as well as I know the details of, let's say, um, you know, whatever, ancient Greece or... Um, the early 20th century or something like that, you know, I mean, uh, and so, but for the, I mean, so I could go through and like for the stuff I know, like critique stuff, but I think like overall, like, uh, I agree. It's boring. I don't know how you could make a book like this, not boring because it is, it's, it's like trying to cram so much information into your head all at once, like reading a book that's like, this is the entire history of the world. Um, and I don't know if there's a way to make that engaging, but we're also probably reading it in the wrong way because we're trying to read it over the course of a couple of weeks, uh, maybe this would be better as like, oh, we're going to read one chapter yeah. uh, every every week, you know, as part of a school curriculum or something. Um, although I wouldn't recommend this being part of a school no. curriculum for the reasons that we've already stated that it's not amazing history. Um, I also think like one thing that, again, the scope of this book makes it impossible to actually do this well is that when he's talking about like, oh, I only picked the stuff that I thought was important to the development of the world and leaves out most of Asian history and most of African history. Well, in the in the 20th century, Asian and African history become central to world politics, yeah. you know, um, as well as Latin American history and South American, like, you know, all that, Which, like cent- Central and South America. Like, and so what happens is in the sections that he didn't write where the people are trying to bring it up to the 1980s, they're having to backtrack and cover all this yeah. stuff with China, all this stuff, especially with like uh, Central and South America. And... I mean, it just goes to show that, like, you know, your biases with history are going to create real blind spots so that you can't anticipate what is important. And I think specifically, the way that he talks about colonialism, but he only talks about colonialism in respects to how it affected what was happening in Europe, which was yeah. like, you know, the conflicts between those nation states, like between France and and uh, Spain and 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 the and, uh, Hol- like the Netherlands and stuff like that, like. He doesn't really talk about the effects on, like, the people in those countries, except to, like, kind of do a hand-wavy sort of thing, like, oh, but the Europeans brought education and all the modern medicine and all that, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's that's its own problem, is the way that he kind of is dismissive of some you know, really awful stuff with colonialism. But a big problem is that if you had read this in the 1920s, and then all of a sudden had to deal with Indian liberation and all of the liberations of the African nations uh, and then the Vietnam War and all this sort of stuff, you would be so ill-equipped to understand what was happening uh, because all of those things are not just about how uh, those European nations, you know, took resources from those countries to enrich themselves, which he talks about, uh, but they're also specifically about the impact of that practice on those countries. And like, you know, understanding the Vietnam War, you know, one of the most... Or, or the Korean War, you know, two of the most, like, important conflicts of, you know, the post-World War II, um, you know, world, um, 
there's no way to understand the the lead up to those things, uh, much less, let's say, the Middle East, um, which again, like everything that happens, like World War One stuff like that, is so important to understanding, like what ends up happening with the Middle East in like the '60s, '70s, and '80s. But you wouldn't know that from having read this book. And I, you can't criticize this guy for not knowing the future. True. Um, and this book shouldn't have been any longer. It was already mighty long. Um, that said, that is true. That said, like, I don't know. May, maybe he's just doomed. Maybe he's just got this like uh, this project itself is just an albatross around his neck that he can never do, he could never do to the satisfaction. Yeah, of and that's what we are. That's one thing I've been thinking about a lot as I'm frustrated with him, but also like appreciating what he's trying to do. I mean, I definitely would never do something like this. Um. But I just, I don't know that you can write a story of mankind because when you, when you attempt to do so in the way that he has, you're going to be speaking from the perspective of those that were in power and why th- those that had agency, why they made the decisions that they made. Um, but, but that's the story of, uh, you know, the elite. That's, that's not the story of, every man, every woman, I, I just, which... And I think that's a short, it's a shorthand that a lot of people have yeah. to take because, you know, it's really difficult to talk about the millions of people living in Europe. It's a lot easier to talk about, like, the few dozen, uh, you know, monarchs that yeah. existed, you know, at a certain time in Europe. And that's still really hard to do. But, yeah, he does, you know, to his credit, to his credit, he's not, you know, he is, uh, he does talk a lot about like, um, especially once you get into the industrialized part, like, um, what like everyday life was like as like Europe industrializes and he talks about like the rise of trade unions and socialism and a lot of stuff that, uh, purports to represent like the perspective of like the quote unquote common man. Right. You know? And so he, he gives time to those things for sure, but he, but but not nearly as much time as, like, let's say to Napoleon, which, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Napoleon's important, but, man, we hear a lot about Napoleon. The other thing that I would say that I appreciated and was surprised by was his acknowledgement of what the Industrial Revolution has done to the environment and what it's going to continue to do. Like, he, he talks about that, and, I mean, we're living that now and we're still having these conversations um with i i don't feel i i just appreciated the authority with which he spoke about that but then you know there's other things that he speaks with authority on that i just disagree with him so i think again that's just where i'm like yeah i wish more people were saying this now but i i don't know if you were also surprised by that but i was surprised by that i i don't know i it's hard to be surprised or not surprised because this book covers such a breadth of topics that you never know what he's going to cover next. Yeah. And oh, okay, we have a top we have a chapter on environmentalism like okay, I guess like you know, we talked about everything else. Um but um yeah, I don't know. So again, like like I said at the beginning, like this guy as with everybody is just a complex it's it's you know everybody is complex and everybody's perspective is complex and so like you know part of what we're just ripping into is we simply disagree with his perspective because we are not 
progressive liberals from the 1920s. Um, and were we that, we probably would have much different things to say about this book. Um, and so there's a, and I'm sure if we decided to tell the story of mankind, people would feel the same way about us. And so like, as with anybody, like it's just a bundle of irreconcilable tensions um, that are manifested in the way that they understand the world. And uh, that's what this book represents, I think. Um, yeah. Which is, it's, it's interesting as an artifact. I, I will say this. We were talking to a friend of ours earlier today and um, he made this point, which he hasn't read it. He just listened to us talk about this book. And he was like, well, it's, it sounds kind of interesting as like just a fossil of what people thought about certain things at a certain point in time. And uh, it is. Um, does that mean it's worthwhile to read to children in 19 or in 2022? Uh, does that mean it's worth your time in 2022 in anything but like an academic sense? Like, I would say not. I wouldn't recommend. Well, I guess we can get to the thumbs up and thumbs down in a second. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to make one other point that you just moving um, away from what we liked and what we disliked. As I was in the trenches of reading this book, and I'm like, were there really no better books written or published in 1921? I I looked up um, other books that were published in that year. And funny aside, I forgot to tell you this, Michael, but there were two books. They were not published in America, so they wouldn't be eligible for the Newbery. But... Um, Ellen Montgomery wrote uh, one of the Ingleside books, like continuing the Anne Green Gables stories that oh, year. Really? Yeah, and then there was a an Oz book that oh, was yeah. published that year. Yeah, so, he was publishing Oz books all yeah, over and the 1920s. Those were sequels and stuff like that, but there were other things being written. But one thing that I came across um, that was published in America was a book called um, American Indian Stories. Um, that was published the same year, A Story of Mankind, and would have been eligible for the Newbery. And this is written from the perspective, um, well, it's written by um, a Sioux Indian talking about um, the hardships that were encountered uh, in the Native American Missionary Manual Labor Schools. And um, it was very much advocating rights for Native Americans, calling for a greater understanding of Native American cultures. Um, so I just... I thought that that was really meaningful, that while this history was written um, from from this very biased perspective and kind of dismissive of minorities and their history and how they play a role in um, the story of mankind, there was this book that was written um, that, that I think sounds way more interesting than this. So maybe we'll read that someday. But, you know what, Hendrik? Wilhelm von Loon would probably say. He would be like, well, good, go read that book. It's good to get a variety he of would. perspectives. He would, which, again, that is to his credit. Um, but What I, I would say is don't read this book. Find histories of little bits of history, such as the Sioux Indian experience or whatever. Don't Again, like I think talking about this has made me call into question the premise of this book in itself, and... The way to learn history is not through this like huge big picture, you know, approach to like thousands of years of history in like a few hundred pages. It's the the importance of understanding what the perspectives are and saying, I'm going to dive into those perspectives rather than try to have a comprehensive, conclusive history. And I mean, like, obviously, as as far as like textbooks and that sort of like 
then go, there is value in that. But in terms of sitting down and reading a book cover to cover, thumbs down, I say, on this book. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, but I am very excited to introduce our next book that we're going to be... Yeah. Shaking uh, off the dust. Yes. From our heels. Which, ironically, you started out this podcast saying that we think that this is one of the very few nonfiction books that won the Newbery, but the next one we're reading is also a nonfiction book. Um, it's actually a biography of my homegirl, Louisa May Alcott. It's called Invincible Louisa, and it's written by Cornelia Meeks. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head what year it was published, but it was in the right. 1930s because yeah, that's the as, decade we're going to next. Right, just as a reminder in case uh, mm-hmm. you've not been studiously taking notes, uh, listeners, but um, our our process is going to be we're going to pick one book from each decade and, and then we'll wrap back around. So we did the 1920s with Story of Mankind. Now we're doing the 1930s with Invincible Louisa. Uh, and then after that, it'll be the 40s, 50s, etc. So Yeah. So... Thanks for listening to us barely talk about what we liked about this book. Um, Because it's not a good book. It's not. But I also, well, we've talked enough about it. So join us next time. Yes, for probably a more positive conversation. I hope it's a more positive conversation or else you're going to be very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do Louisa wrong. Thanks for listening. Bye.